citizens. I feel honored and privileged to be able to address this esteemed committee and in an effort to reveal truth and justice for not just myself, but for all. In early May of 2019, the FBI launched a full investigation on me. At our trials, rigged so that we could not reveal the criminality of the FBI's actions in our case, they cited three reasons for the investigation. First, anonymous reporting of me illegally possessing firearms. They knew that anonymous reportings are difficult to validate, and as the highest law enforcement of the land, they should have been aware of the governor's pardon that I had received in April of 2019, rendering that claim to be bogus. Secondly, they cited my exercise of First Amendment free speech on social media, which may have been distasteful, but didn't reach the threshold of criminal. And third and most important was information they received from the Dallas field office. I hadn't been in or near Texas in 2019. This was merely retaliatory for my association with Kevin Lindell Massey, a 2014 border defender from Texas who was discovered by federal law enforcement on December 23, 2019 with a gunshot wound to the neck, which they ruled a suicide. They monitored my every move for eight months and I hadn't committed any crime. This included warrants for every form of communication I took part in, use of 24-hour physical surveillance teams, and social media informants who had never met me. All to no avail, I hadn't committed any crime. But the FBI was determined to obtain a prosecution against me. Their answer was to send CHSs or confidential human sources at me in January of 2020. The term CHS is very misleading. It implies that they are using informants. In Black's Law Dictionary, informant is defined as one who confidentially supplies information to the police about a crime. But what happens when law enforcement knows that there is no crime? The CHS is paid and used as an agent provocateur. The definition of agent provocateur in Merriam-Webster's dictionary is a person hired to infiltrate a group and incite its members to illegal action. The court sealed the discovery information in our case in order to cover up for the FBI. If you investigate this case, I swear before the almighty God, you'll find these words to be true. I apologize and have paid for my intoxicated ramblings that were recorded, but I did not conspire to commit any crime. In 1932, Supreme Court Justice Roberts stated in his opinion, Courts must be closed to the trial of a crime instigated by the government's own agents. He also stated that preservation of the purity of its own temple belongs only to the court. But what happens when the court shields its eyes from the truth and through its rulings obscures the facts? I want to offer my sincerest gratitude for your obvious pursuit of the righteous truth. If we cannot rely on the judicial and executive branches to serve and protect justice, that awesome responsibility falls on the legislative branch. And all Americans should be encouraged by your efforts to do that. As for myself, and judging by my experience in this case, I feel that you are my only hope for the legitimate finding of fact in this matter. Thank you for hearing from me. God bless and protect the United States of America.
Sorry, I had a little glitch there, guys. I couldn't find the unmute button. Hey, this is Jose Galison. You're watching No Way Jose. You can find me on YouTube, all major all packages, and Aussie as well. What you guys just saw was a statement from Barry Croft, one of the individuals in the whole Whitmer, uh, you know, go uh, uh, Michigan governor kidnapping scheme. If you've been following my channel, you're definitely aware of that. If not, uh, I will let you guys know this episode, we're kind of going deep and past a lot of this stuff. So, I mean, you can watch if you want. But we're not going to really hold your hand through it. I would suggest going back and watching the playlist. But, you know, do, do with it what you will. But anyways, my point being, that was a statement he made, uh, you know, to, I believe, the Weapons Committee. Or I forget exactly what it's called, but that's why I have Ken on here to talk about. To be honest, I'm not really good at paying attention to current events, so that's why I have him for. Uh, he can explain all the little details. Uh, this is an interesting one for sure. I knew I had to do an update on all this when I found out what's going on. And you'll see why here in a second. But real quick, let's. Pay the bills. Oh, yeah, my guest, Ken Silva. I think I may have just said that, may have not. I don't know. I zoned out. Either way, uh, that's my guest today, Ken Silva. I've had him on a few times. Uh, he'll let you know who he is, what he's about. Uh, but he's a uh, definitely covers a lot of stuff I like to talk about. So he'll probably keep on coming back. But, anyways, if you guys want, you want to know how this works, normally, uh, like right now, it's the 21st. This is a live stream for my patrons. So if you want to have access to that, you need to be a patron at patron.com. No way, Jose 2020. Or you'll wait like a week or so later till it drops. Sometimes I do don't put stuff by on the paywall. It depends on what it is. Typically, it's just my Four Pony Boys series. That's pretty much the only thing that does that. But uh, yeah, if you want to support me that way, that's cool. If not, oh well. Uh, but the lowest level is two bucks. Highest level is twenty. Uh, my, that's my sponsor level. I have Mikhail Thorpe of the Expat Money Show. Jeremy has an Etsy store uh, at Etsy.com/shop/raisingliberty. Follow him on Twitter at Jeremy Rhymes. Then Toad, my co-host of Tower Gang. Uh, yeah, you can follow him at Tower Gang Toad, and you can go check out his podcast and my podcast, uh, Tower Gang. We're on YouTube, Spotify, uh, you know, Rumble, Odyssey, all the places. Uh, definitely go check that out. Once again, I always got to let you guys know, if you came to this channel and you saw this and you expect this there, that's not what that is. That's offensive comedy. So I'm not going to have any, I'm not going to feel bad at all if you go and say I'm offended. You've been warned. But uh, I also have Zach Overacker at Z-O-V-E-R-A-C-K on Twitter if you want to follow him. Uh, last thing, toplots.com. You're supposed to have to check out for 10% off. He's the one who got me that uh, Yiki shirt you saw on Timcast. Uh, you know, I pretty much, you know, I have a ton of merch from his, is my merch there. He has Tower Gang merch, bunch of stuff. Go check out his website. Go get some, go get some t-shirts from him. Support me, support Tower Gang. Uh, just support Top. He's a great guy. And with that, let's go ahead and get Ken in here. What's up, Ken? How you doing? Hey. Hey. Uh, you want to go ahead and introduce yourself for the audience? Let them know who you are, what you're about. I know you've been on here before, but... Uh, hopefully, I've picked up a few people since then. Yeah, sure. Uh, my name is Ken Silva. I'm a reporter. I think last time I talked to your audience, I was just working for a local newspaper in Kentucky. Uh, since then, I've moved on to a site called Headline USA, which covers national news, largely from a conservative libertarian perspective. I would guess if and if I have a specialty, it would be domestic terrorism. Um, FBI malfeasance and stuff like that. Uh, I was actually just thinking, and this is just a completely organic question that came with on the fly. I, it's just weird. It seems to be that you seem to cover a lot of stuff I like. Oh, you got the Yiki shirt on. Holy shit. I didn't see I it. I wore it just for you. Yeah. Hell yeah, dude. I'm glad to see it's getting around. Uh, um, I got, I've got, I've definitely got a few, uh, few people mention it and a few eyes on it. So um, it's cool. I guess someone got mad that I uh making money off it, and I'm like, I, I mean, Top's making money off it, but okay. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was really cool to see you on Tim Pool with the shirt. I feel like it was a little bit like um, 
the first time Dave Smith went on Rogan, he wore the Murray Rothbard enemy of the state shirt and all us libertarian nerds kind of geeked out over that. And uh, I had a similar experience watching you on Tim Pool. So that was, that was really cool. Yeah, no, it was cool. I mean, a lot of people seem to get upset that we didn't go on this like 30 minutes Berg fashion session about OKC, but I mean, it is what it is. You, you do what you can. Yeah, it would have been nice, but it's also like, hey, I'm not going to just show up. Like, guess what? This is my podcast now. Yeah. <laughs> it is what it is. We talked a little bit in the after hours thing, so people are interested. Not a ton, so don't get like upset if you go pay for it and it's not as much as you expected. But uh, yeah, I mean, I don't know. Hopefully, I come back. I'll keep. I'll probably wear the shirt again. Probably do a tank top next time. But nice. yeah. <laughs> But uh, anyways, what I was kind of curious, what the what what compelled you to kind of write the things you do? Uh, like, where are you kind of coming from with the the stuff that you're covering? I guess, or, or what inspired you? It's kind of an open ended question. You go multiple different angles of it. I know it's a little bit of kind of a cake question that people hand off to you know journalists and stuff. But I'm genuinely kind of curious because it is weird. Uh, you, especially OKC, uh, you know, the Michigan stuff, it seems to be your head is very much a lot where mine is. And you seem to also see the interplay between different things, you know? So I, I don't know, I'm just curious. Oh yeah, no problem. Um, I've been kind of like a Ron Paul guy since 2008. I uh, started working for local newspapers, bounced around, got a job as a crime reporter in the Caribbean, thought I'd do that for a year or two. Ended up spending the majority of my 20s there. Uh, moved back to D.C. in 2019, and I went to um, uh, kind of a, a seminar where Scott Horton was speaking. I'd never met him before, and I just came up and introduced myself and asked if he had any like writing opportunities for more like a libertarian angle rather than straight news. And, you know, being the really nice guy that he is, he didn't just tell me some some kid just to, you know, screw off. He actually gave me his card and I started writing a couple things for him um, in 19 and 2020. The lockdowns hit and I just, yeah, I guess I went down a lot of rabbit hole, rabbit holes while I was stuck home alone. Um, specifically with OKC, though, I read uh, Wendy Painting's book, Aberration in the Heartland of the Real, and that kind of really blew my mind, even though I had already been like a Ron Paul guy for 12 years, that actually changed how I view about the government, got super obsessed with that case, uh, and then one day I was just searching through court records, and I decided to run some of these OKC guys' names through the system to see where they are now, and that's where I found out that there's still some current news stories about these players from OKC, such as uh, Pete Langan, who's suing government for a sex change now. He was a, a, kind of a loose associate of McVeigh. Uh, Jesse Trenadu still has his FOIA lawsuit open against the government, and I did an update on that. Probably the best story, you know, the thing I'm most proud of. And uh, so... Uh, yeah, that, that's my my story in short. Oh, cool. When was that update on? Uh, I, I did not come across that, so and I'd be interested in reading it. That was that was about a year ago. Oh, okay. So it was not a super recent update. Uh, yeah, yeah. And hopefully yeah. we get some big updates soon. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The case is still under seal, but hopefully we'll have some big developments uh, that might even get the attention of this so-called weaponization committee, which we're about to talk about. Yeah, I guess that's a perfect segue for us to go and get into it. Uh, what the hell is that? Because I, 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 like I said, I'm awful at keeping up with current events. Uh, I just, 
I mostly am stuck in theory or old conspiracies or even new conspiracies, kind of like the Michigan stuff. So the only reason I even really can it kind of came across it, I heard I saw a few little murmurs on Twitter and here and there, but nothing that really like caught my eye. The wording didn't really like catch me because it didn't, didn't make me think of like FBI corruption. I assumed it was some inane like weapons budgeting thing or something. I, I don't I don't know. Like I didn't know what to think of it. And then because of my interest in the Michigan thing, it kind of brought me like, oh, wait, is this actually real shit? Like. So it's, for me, it's like now that I know it is, I'm like, how did I not know about this? Because my impression, I haven't looked into it deeply, is like, holy shit, like this is like way more than I expected. Uh, but I guess I'll let you let, let us know what it is, uh, what's going on there. I mean, maybe I mean, I'm not super in touch with the news, so I don't, I don't know if me not knowing about it is a good impression of the normal person. Uh, is this a thing that's being pretty publicized or is this just a thing most people don't know about just like me? Uh, even um, people like me that are kind of into this sphere. Yeah, first of all, I'm jealous of you because 99% <laughs> of the news is garbage. But uh, the, so the, weapon, the Weaponization Committee was formed after the recent elections where Republicans took the House. There was this whole kerfuffle about who's going to be the Speaker of the House. Is it going to be the establishment guy, Kevin McCarthy, or or some other person? And there was these the good Republicans, the few ones, the Freedom Caucus members would not elect McCarthy as House Speaker unless he actually promised to do real oversight in the next Congress. And one of the concessions um, extracted by the so-called good Republicans is they got McCarthy to agree to form the Weaponization Committee, which they're branding it as being modeled after the church committee from the 70s, which I'm sure you know, and your audience probably knows, that's the committee that exposed MKUltra, mm -hmm. all these assassinations, COINTELPRO, like some real, real, real stuff. And probably one of the last times Congress did actual oversight. So the Republicans are modeling this as church committee 2.0, they want to go after the um, the FBI for real. Like the, the whole reason they call it the weaponization committee is because they say the FBI has been weaponized against its political opponents. Um, whether it's going to result yield the results of the original church committee, I've got some early doubts. Um, the CIA whistleblower, John Kiriakou, who's on Scott Horton's show often, he recently said on Matt Taibbi's podcast that he's been told that the weaponization committee hired a bunch of like CIA people to work <laughs> as staffers. And the idea is like the CIA hates the FBI. So we're going to get the CIA on this and they're going to, you know, make the FBI look bad. So I don't even have to explain why that's really jokey and leads me to concern whether this committee's serious. Uh, but I've been told that they do intend to look at, at the Whitmer case. Uh, so it remains to be seen. They've had one hearing and that was on the Twitter files, um, which is a legitimate issue. And, uh, you know, there was some good sound bites that came out of the hearing, but we'll see if they dig into any kind of Pat Con theme topics. I, I'm doubtful. Yeah, uh, I'm definitely interested. I mean, I am doubtful as well. I mean, I don't really remember the exact fallout of the church committee, but even the church committee, I believe my impression was it wasn't like anyone got, I mean, maybe there were a few people went to jail or whatever, but it was mostly just a, my bad. Some people lost their jobs. Uh, I mean, maybe I'm wrong. 
Uh, maybe there's a few handful of the, uh, examples of people who actually got jail time or something. But I mean, I remember reading a few different books and just like, oh yeah, this guy had to retire. Early. Yeah, I don't think it. Resulted, <laughs> uh, I don't think it resulted in anybody getting in real trouble. It more so is a valuable committee for our understanding of history. And supposedly, you know, the FBI and the CIA, they they scaled back their stupidness until 9-11 happened and they, they re-expanded. Of course, we know that's that's bullshit. Um, the, the OKC, the, the FBI guy, Bob Ricks, that investigated OKC, he was a top official in the FBI. And after OKC happened, He's like, oh, we didn't prevent it because we didn't have informants on the ground because the church committee restricted us. And as Richard Bruth has pointed out, that was a bold-faced lie. That was before we knew about PatCon. So, mm -hmm. uh, yeah. Informants everywhere, yeah. yeah. <laughs> if anything, that's the main point. It's like, who's an informant who's not? There's so many informants here. You're really expecting me that the least, at the very least there wasn't some sort of plans went awry and there was a cover-up or something like, like to me that's like basically like confirmed in my head now the real question is was it a was it essentially a red flag or whatever was it something the government perpetrated intentionally at some level of you know or some whether it's at a lower level or higher or maybe i don't know that that's the real question i'm i lean towards they did but i i don't necessarily assert that but i will assert there was at very least a cover-up uh, and because of the informant issue, like you mentioned, um, well, I guess we should probably go ahead and let the audience know. So they kind of get how the hell this ties into, uh, you know, the whole Michigan thing. Uh, I guess if you, I'll let you go ahead and lay that out for us, uh, kind of where we're getting to, you know, how these two things tie together, uh, you know, specifically in the context of, uh, Adam Fox and Barry Croft. Sure. So I'm, I assume most of your, watchers and listeners are pretty familiar with this case. You recently had the journalist Christina Urso on who goes under the pen name Radix Verum. She's working on a, a pretty, what hopes to be a, a blockbuster documentary on the Whitmer case. And as part of her work, she's been in touch with the two men who were convicted of the plot, Adam Fox and Barry Croft. And they've been kind of giving her information that wasn't divulged in, in trial, talking to her about how they were set up, um, you know, all that good stuff. And so they've been talking to her for weeks, maybe even months now. But as part of her work, she asked them to both record statements for this church committee slash weaponization committee that we were just talking about, explaining them to the, the committee why they should look into their case. Specifically, they're asking the committee to subpoena their the sealed records in their case. So when they were in trial, the DOJ has to produce all the evidence against them, but they're not allowed to give that evidence to the public, not all of it. Only the evidence that the DOJ uses in court is allowed to be in public. If you were given it, but it's, it wasn't used as evidence, you're not allowed to give it to journalists or anything like that. And that's where the real smoking guns lie, according to Barry Croft and Adam Fox. And, you know, there's plenty of reasons to believe that because of what we already know about, you know, 12 plus informants and all, all the foolishness they did. So they 
recorded these statements and Radix Verum publishes one of the statements from Barry on her YouTube channel on Sunday, last Sunday. I see that. I pick it up. I run a story for Headline USA the next day on Monday, you know, saying, hey, you know, this, this guy has a message for Congress. The very next day on Tuesday, Barry Croft and Adam Fox were transferred out of their county jail in Michigan and taken to a transfer center in Oklahoma. And they weren't just put on a bus. They were, from what Adam's mother told me, they were put in like little separate cages and put in separate vans, like it's Hannibal Lecter or like they're like they're, they're the craziest guys. And they were taken to Pittsburgh, flown to Oklahoma, and then Adam Fox was transferred to a facility called, um, you know, the Supermax in Florence, Colorado, which was once home to the Unabomber. I think he's aged out of that. He's like in some old folks prison right now. But it's also the home of uh, Ramsey Youssef, El Chapo, uh, and of course, Terry Nichols, you know, the accomplice involved in the Oklahoma City bombing. So this is a prison that's built for the worst of the worst. And if your viewers watch your show with Radix Verum, you'll know that Adam Fox is not the worst of the worst. At, at the very most, he was a guy spouting off his mouth. Maybe he had bad intentions and wanted to do something, but he didn't have the capacity. But as Christina kind of explained, he was a recently divorced homeless guy living in the basement of a vac shack at the lowest point of his life right at the point when all these FBI informants started to surround him and manipulate him into being a so-called militia ringleader to, uh, to do this so-called plot to kidnap the governor. So we know Adams in the Florence Supermax, but we don't know if he's in solitary, gen pop anywhere because his family still hasn't heard from him. He hasn't called anybody since last Wednesday. And the, the same for Barry Croft. We don't, he's not even in, federal custody right now. He's in a private prison. So we have no idea what's going on. At least Adam Fox at Florence Supermax, if you if you pull up the Bureau of Prisons website, you could look up his name and see that yes, he's he's in Florence. But Barry, we don't even know really where he is. His mother just texted me right before our show saying saying, I'm growing increasingly nervous over not yet hearing from Barry. It's been a week now. Booking and receiving is usually between 48 to 72 hours. Um, yeah, she goes, she, it's a long text, but she's pretty much worried about her son's life. So that's that's the status. And again, this is right after they issued statements for Congress. They were talking to this journalist. I mean, I view this as direct retaliation, trying to shut these guys up. Weren't there suspicions that perhaps Barry, or maybe this was Adam, was going to be going to another unit just like a the one you mentioned uh, Fox is going to uh, and, and possibly having, uh, which this will be another topic we'll probably cover in a second, the CMUs, which, uh, I mean, to be put it simply, it sounds like just more of a, a more advanced version of, you know, restricting people's communication to the outside world. But we can definitely go into that because that, uh, I think that's an interesting uh, thing because I've been kind of stuck on lately. Or I guess not stuck on, but thought that frequently crossed my mind when you think about things like OKC or other crazy conspiracies like how do they maintain the narrative? 
And like uh, one example was would be Terrence Yiki's death. There would be the uh, Mueller murders where uh, Chevy Kehoe killed him and his entire family. I believe this was prior to the, the court trials with McVeigh. So that's going to create certain incentives for people involved. If you see a whole family, and by family, I mean him, his wife, and his under 10 year old daughter were, you know, literally murdered. And it's, it's looks like, you know, that it was somehow associated with his time in Elohim city. Um, and this would be another thing in how they control the narrative. But anyways, the long way to ask where the hell is, was there some sort of suspicion he was going to a unit like this as well? Is that backed up anything or just suspicion? Well, that's what we're thinking. Apparently Barry got to make a phone call last Wednesday. He told his girlfriend that, the U.S. Marshals told him that he's going to a prison in Terre Haute, Terre Haute, Indiana, which is similar, not as bad as Florence, but it's similarly restrictive in your ability to talk to the public. And yes, as you said, it's the home of what they call a communication management unit, which is designed to prevent terrorists or drug lords or, you know, gang leaders from talking to their buddies outside and still committing crimes. Um, and he, he probably is going to be sent there eventually if hopefully he's, he's okay. Um, but yeah, these units are designed really, uh, I, I looked up a statistic. I think only 60% of the people in there are actual terrorists. Now yeah. I think the whistle, the, the drone whistleblower, Daniel Hale, he's there. There's this libertarian hacktivist, Marty Gottsfeld, who's being housed there. Uh, he's a guy that um, a Boston Children's Hospital kind of kidnapped this couple's daughter back in 2014. And in retaliation, uh, Marty Gottsfeld kind of did, uh, he hacked the, ho he didn't really hack the hospital. He overwhelmed it with traffic so it couldn't raise funds for a specific fundraiser. Really innocuous event, but they threw him in, in the CMU to prevent him from talking. And uh, there's another guy that supposedly has information about Fast and Furious that they're housing there. Yeah, it, it's just it's house. It's a housing unit for political prisoners. It's long outlived the purpose for which it was created, which was right after 9/11 to prevent these scary Al Qaeda guys from being able to carry attacks from behind bars. Yeah, uh, and I want to be clear because I feel like uh, not that I ever really get too much flack back for these, but I feel like. If there's anyone, someone really stumping for the government here, they could they could point out be like, well, they're not 100% restricted or this or that, but it'll be something along the lines of one phone call a month or something. And if you're someone who is a, you know, a whistleblower or someone who has something to say, like a Terry Nichols or the Michigan guys, uh, you know, one phone call a month. If you have people you care about in your life or lawyers or whatever, that time is is it's it's making it far less likely that you're going to use that time to pursue that goal if you only have five to whatever minutes uh, you know a month to interact with someone you're probably going to choose to interact with a loved one or your lawyers or whoever and it it, it just kind of creates these incentives where nothing could get done and on top of that, uh, they, they, you know, even if like you were trying to think like, well, you could write a book and send it out. No, they literally go through all your mail and all that. I, I guess I'll, I'll ask you like, what, what kind of restrictions do they have at this? Uh, you, you probably could lay it better out there than I could, but it definitely does 
from my reading, it makes it definitely would pretty much basically make it impossible to get any sort of bombshell out to the real world. Yeah, they they read all your mail. I think they even redact letters that you might receive or send. And they even bind your attorneys so that if you talk to your attorney, your attorney can't give the message to the public. The attorney is bound to confidentiality or they, they pretty much put a gag order on the guy. Um, and we have actual examples that tie into OKC about this, where of, of the, the grandmother of two children who died in the bombing was trying to contact Terry Nichols to find out potential information about John Doe too. And this grandmother, again, a victim of the bombing, they said she posed a security threat to the prison and the inmates, and they wouldn't let her in the prison to talk to Nichols. So that just gives you an idea about some of the restrictions they're willing to impose on these people in order to keep things quiet. Yeah, uh, it's crazy. If you actually, if you wouldn't mind, could you lay that story out a little bit more? Because I remember reading in your article and it was pretty, pretty nuts. Uh, the, the extent to which they were restricting uh, her interaction with Nichols and the excuses they were using, which mind you, uh, I don't assume everyone who watches my channel has, you know, watched my entire OKC playlist. But uh, I'm, I actually, you know, looking through this CMU stuff and reading this article it reminded me of when me and uh, you know, me and Booth were covering this and we kind of had this conversation about, I don't remember what specifically Booth was talking about, but essentially Booth was saying, you know, this guy knows stuff like, he knows stuff for sure. I can't remember the exact example. I'm like almost hundred percent certain Terry Nichols has straight up said that he knows John Doe do, and he, he knows this and he knows that and, you know, multiple other things, but he, he can't say anything for, you know, safety of his family. Now you, and me and him were kind of theorizing like he should, you know, totally talk. And I actually kind of has back a little bit like, well, if I was him, I wouldn't say a word because you know, it's your family, you know, like that comes first, but you know, now add in the additional thing of being in some sort of CMU or heavily restricted communications area where you don't have these type of things. It like, let's say he had a normal interaction with the normal world and he was able to, even with that stance, he may very well between, you know, uh, admiring fans or journalists or whatever, you know, contacting him through the mail, he may slip up this little detail or that little detail, very much like what's kind of happened with the JFK stuff and what also happened with the OKC stuff. What's happened over time is you don't end up with bombshells, but you'll end up with this little piece of information that adds up to this other piece of information. And you can start putting things together and it starts to paint a story. So because of this, I think there's a very good chance we've been robbed of a lot of possibilities of advancements in this story. Even if even maintaining him being like, I will not give out these specific, you know, things because of, you know, the safety of my family, you pick up little details here and there and it adds up. Uh, but we don't have that at all because of the situation he's in. But anyways, I'll, I'll let you go. And I want to, I want to hear a story so people can understand kind of how ridiculous it is. Uh, yeah, I'd be happy to. Cause I think it's a piece of, OKC lore that uh, you and Booth haven't covered yet. And I know you've mm -hmm. done like 14 hours. So that's, that's quite a statement. Uh, so Kathy Wilburn Sanders was a grandmother who, as I said, lost her two grandchildren in the Oklahoma city bombing. They were one of the two of the kids in the daycare and she was obviously devastated, but she was one of the few victims and victim family members who 
were grouped in what was known at, at the time as the Oklahoma City dissidents. They were the ones who did not believe that, govern, that the government had caught all those who were responsible. And she details her story in a book she published about eight years ago called Now You See Me. It's, it's more of a book about her process of grieving and forgiving, uh, I, but it's a very easy book to read. I, I would recommend it. And it still hits a lot of the key points about the un, unanswered questions we have about this case. Uh, but in any event, she gets deep into Christianity as a way to cope with this terrible, terrible tragedy. And as part of that, she strives to forgive people. So amazingly, this mother who lost her two grandchildren to an act that Terry Nichols helped perpetrate strikes a friendship with Terry Nichols and starts corresponding with him. They become pen pals, and it's a very slow process. She's kind of just trying to find it within her to forgive Terry Nichols, and they they talk about the weather and really innocuous things like that until it comes to a point in the early 2000s where I think Terry Nichols might be fearing for his safety or just really wants to get the story out. And he's willing to spill the beans, but the only person he trusts to tell his story to is Kathy Wilburn Sanders because of the established relationship they had. And so Kathy was going to go to Florence Supermax to interview Terry, which that uh, it's my understanding that they will facilitate interviews at time, but she sends a letter to the warden asking to conduct this uh, interview. The warden responds, as, as I mentioned earlier, calling her a, a security risk. You know, Terry Nichols, as, as people who've listened to your show with Booth know, he's not a mass murderer in the sense that like he's not just going to start stabbing people or anything. He's kind of a, a soft guy. Kathy's a grandmother. The whole thing's absurd, but she's still undaunted. She gets 60 minutes involved and eventually they set up a potential interview where Terry Nichols would call Kathy and it would be recorded for 60 minutes. And I guess initially the government was going to facilitate this but there were delays, and then on the day it was supposed to happen, Terry picked up the phone to make the call, and I guess some prison guard told him, like, nope, not today, buddy. You can't call, can't call Kathy. And then Kathy gets removed from the list of people that he's allowed to talk to. And uh, as a last gasp, a desperate effort, Kathy was going to have Terry call his mother and then Kathy would pick up the phone and do the interview and ask him a number of questions about, you know, uh, you know, John Doe two potential accomplices and all that stuff. But I guess Kathy is the devout Christian. She is, she knows that if she does this, Terry will never be able to speak to his mother again. So she kind of felt that it was the proper thing to let it rest. And Kathy, I mean, she's an amazing woman. Somehow she's put this behind her and she hasn't talked to Terry since 2006. And so that's the story in a nutshell. And I just wanted to add that, like, Kathy's one of the OGs. Like, even before Jesse Trenadue, Roger Charles, or anybody got involved in the case, she was one of the originals that was asking, well, like, hey, the ATF wasn't 
there that morning? Why was that? Like, she, if not for people like Kathy, there would be no JD Cash and then no Jesse Trenadu, then no Richard Booth. So like we all owe Kathy a lot. And I just, her story really does tug on the heartstrings. Yeah, I believe I may be talking a little bit out my butt here, but I vaguely remember because I watched Radix is uh, one of her more recent uh, things. By the way, uh, for these people interested, that intro I played was on her channel. So if you want to share it around, you can go, you know, you go on her channel and find it. But uh, I believe I vaguely remember something. Maybe you're familiar with this. Maybe you're not. I believe whether it was Fox or Croft, something similar happened to her recently where I believe she may have implied she was essentially taken off the approval like contact list or something like that with them, which is during the period where she was contacting uh, talking to them about a documentary, which I can't understand any reason whatsoever why they wouldn't be able to talk. I don't know if that, that does that sound correct to you. I mean, I'm, you might know more than I do. Yeah, I think so. Barry, for all we know, we're pretty sure he's in a private prison in Oklahoma and he tried to call Radix and she tried to accept the call, but there were technical difficulties, which that's par for the course. That happens all the time with these restrictive facilities. In fact, Scott Horton uh, recently interviewed another journalist called Arthur Bloom, mm -hmm. who wrote all about the CMUs in Terre Haute, the Fast and Furious whistleblower, who had similar experiences. They were trying to submit an application for amnesty to the Trump administration late in 2020 and their emails were getting bounced back even though the journalist arthur bloom was giving them the exact the exact addresses and everything and so bloom had to he kind of transgressed journalistic boundaries and he got personally involved and helped them submit the application itself that, that's a whole long story but uh, you know to your what you're saying yeah yeah uh definitely screwy um i believe Adam and uh, Adam Fox and Barry Croft both have appeals going on right now as well. That was something I was just thinking about. There is kind of a little bit of a sinister aspect there where they're supposed to be, you know, you know, working on getting their due time in court. And, you know, you'd think in prison you'd have almost nothing else to do, but they're essentially getting their hands tied behind their back to where now I guess it's just kind of, oh, trust your lawyers. Because, I, I mean, it sounds to me like they probably are going to get I don't know, tops, what, maybe once every couple of weeks or once a month interaction with their lawyers at this point. And, you know, they're, you know, fighting for their freedom. And uh, I, I don't know, it just seems unfair, you know, completely. Uh, I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. It, well, obviously, <laughs> I obviously I agree. And yeah, I think Christina issued a message about it on her YouTube channel. And she said that Barry had been working on a book and they just confiscated that. I talked to Adam Fox's mom and I asked her about the appeal and she said, well, yeah, they just shipped me all of Adam's stuff. And I do, I have this letters, like he was recently contacted by his appeal attorney. Um, but yeah, like how do you prepare for a case when you're caged 23 hours a day with no reading material, just in like a, a padded room? It's, it's just the worst. It's, it's, it's probably the darkest twist to this case. We all know the government's willing to entrap people. You can kind of picture dealing with prison would be terrible, like pretty much the worst thing ever. But even worse is the, this is psychological torture. They're just keeping these guys in solitary. 
Yeah, do we know? Are they staying in Solitary? I mean, obviously we don't know. I forget. I mix up the names. One, we don't know currently where he is. I believe that's Fox or is that Croft? We, Fox, we know, is in okay. Florence. We don't know if he's in the administrative facility or whatever where they keep El Chapo and all the worst of the worst or if he's in general population. Okay. Uh, but I would imagine that there's keeping these guys in solitary. Um, that would be my guess. And I think, you know, it's, it's a fair assumption to make. Do we know, is that common practice for like, say with the CMU people, are they also going through that or, or is that out of your expertise? I and mean, if that's, if so, that's fine. I'm just kind of curious uh, what kind of life these they're subjecting these people to. Whether all CMU people are in solitary. I, I, I'm not sure. I know if you look at the Marty Gottsfield, that libertarian hacker guy in CMU, um, he's got some pictures with him and some of the other inmates. So they at least are, it seems like they interact occasionally. I'm not really too familiar with the overall conditions of that facility or if they're let out at all or anything like that. I just remember reading the article, you mentioned the 23 hours a day. So I assume that meant they got like solitary 23 and they probably got like an hour of between food, shower, rack, whatever, uh, you know, whatever those things may be. And the rest of the time you're just stuck in your cell alone. Uh, yeah, which... There is a lower security aspect of Florence. Um, but I don't see why they'd send Adam there. If they're going to put him in the lower security unit, I think they would just keep him in the Michigan area or something. I, um, unless, you know, I'd be happy to be wrong. I'd be very, very happy to be wrong, but I just, I got to imagine that they're they're doing the worst of the worst because, I mean, let's be real. They they were poking the bears. I think Fox and Croft are heroic for being willing to talk to Radix Verum and give us this information about what the government's doing to them. But I I don't know if it was a good idea. I, I think if I hadn't been thinking about it at the time, but if I would have thought about it, I probably could have I should have anticipated that they would have gotten severe blowback for still talking to people like us yeah i mean i don't know this seems to me even a little heavy-handed i probably wouldn't have predicted this sort of uh you know outcome but i i don't know uh, i did want to talk for a minute about the nature of the people that end up in here because i do find it weird you said uh i also watched that interview with bloom I actually sent him a dm hoping to hear back from him i don't know we'll see um, you know, I'd like to get him on to talk about this because I do think it's interesting. The story he covered, how it ties into Fast and Furious, it's just fun once you start going down these rabbit holes, how they all intersect. But uh, e either way, the the nature of the people that get housed there and kind of the logic behind it, because I can kind of somewhat understand how maybe there would be certain individuals, uh, especially ones that maybe people think of being inspirational or whatever. Uh, I mean, I don't know, I guess I'd still kind of lean towards don't do this, but I got to understand like a Ted, Ted Kaczynski probably be a good example. I don't know. I'm sure there's, I mean, between him, don't be wrong. I actually read his manifesto. It's great. It's, <laughs> you know, it's, it's a great manifesto. Obviously I don't agree with the violent stuff, but that really wasn't what the manifesto was about. So <laughs> like if it's anyone's read, it, it's a great manifesto. And I, uh, but so that does kind of create this inspirational aspect for people. And then, I don't know, maybe some people get the wrong message of like, well, we got to blow shit up or whatever. I, I I don't know. I don't even understand how he got from the manifesto to blowing shit up. That doesn't make sense to me. If you read the manifesto, wh whatever, I, I don't know. But e either way, the point being is kind of like the, the nature the, or the reasoning behind it 
Like you can almost understand it, but you get to a point. Terry Nichols is a good example. Yes, he was involved in the Michigan or in the uh, OKC bombing, but it's like, what kind of hazard is he? He's not a violent guy. He's not an inspirational figure in it either, which they may want to probably, I'm sure they would probably try to portray him like it to be able to justify sending him off. But if anything, had McVeigh not died, that would make more sense because McVeigh would be the more inspirational character for people who identify with that. And, you know, the rare people that do, um, maybe like a Ramsey Yusuf, I could kind of understand. Uh, but yeah, I just, I find it, you do end up where it just becomes this political thing. And, you know, th- this is a great example. These guys getting sent to units like this, they're, n- they're not violent. Uh, you know, even if you look at the court case of what they kind of got acute or got hit with, it's, it's, I, I don't know. It, it, I don't see there being any reasoning whatsoever. I, I guess I'm just kind of ranting here because it just seems weird. I don't know if you have any thoughts on it. it. It's just, I don't know. Well, I'm glad you mentioned McVeigh because it should be pointed out that McVeigh was re- was for a short stint, he was housed at the Florence Supermax, the same place as Nichols and now Adam Fox. And journalists were granted access to him, including like TV interviews and things like that. So if it's safe to interview McVeigh, why would it not be safe to interview Nichols, who's the lesser of two evils? I mean, it, it's it's definitely dumb. And the idea, so I guess the beyond the justification of like, hey, we need to prevent these guys from talking to their buddies on the outside, uh, Florence Supermax is known for housing like pathologically violent criminals where if you kill somebody in a prison in Timbuktu, they'll send you to Florence. But that also, we know that whole reason is BS because people get stabbed in Florence on almost a weekly basis. It's like one of the worst jails in the, in the country in terms of violence. So yeah, yeah, I don't, sorry, I don't have a better response for that. I can't even try to steel man government's argument for why these facilities are necessary because every reason that they try to put forward is just there's tons of holes in it. Yeah. It's like, I can come up with a few examples, but it's like, I, I don't know. That's like what one guy a prison. I don't know. <laughs> like, but like the, the amount of people this would apply to is insanely low. And I also did want to point out me and you both know why McVeigh, uh, they let it with McVeigh, but not Nichols, but <laughs> different characters. Uh, one seemed to think he was going to make it through for some weird reason. I don't know if you remember that little bit. <laughs> uh, which, for those who don't understand, I, I don't remember who he said this to. I, I believe it was one or two sources he implied he was going to, you know, somehow they're going to get him out of there and he wasn't going to die or whatever because, you know, he supposedly even then was telling people, you know, to the official people, he was he was saying the official story, but to people behind closed doors, he was saying, yeah, guys, I'm a government agent and they're going to get me out. So I, I don't know. Take that what you will. I'm not saying he asserting he was, but there are things uh, he definitely seemed to at least tell people he was. So, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, uh, and I would but, say at the very least, these decisions should be made by a judge who has to issue an order or a judgment that, lays out the reasons there should be more transparency behind this because I get the sense that this was probably somebody high up in the DOJ who saw that they were talking to a documentary, uh, Christina about the documentary and probably just signed a piece of paper. And the next day they were transferred like that. So I think 
obviously we know government isn't going to operate fairly or efficiently, but in an, uh, some kind of utopia, it should be a much more open and transparent process where they say, hey, this guy has stabbed five people. He needs to be put in this special housing facility because, you know, he's unfit to even be in a normal prison. Yeah. Well, all right. It's been fun having you here, Ken. What, you got any other big uh, stories you're working on lately or anything recently that you uh, wanted to let us know about? Uh, kind of, I don't really keep up with articles, but I, I try to whenever I uh, check over on your page and see what you have recently when I can. Uh, but you got, you got anything you worked on recently or something coming up you want to tell us about? Yeah, I might have some interesting stuff about this train derailment in Ohio. I'm talking to a scientist who was recently appointed to a task force. And this guy actually seems like a pretty good guy who will give some good information about it. Um, still following OKC, Whitmer, January 6th, and all that good stuff. But uh, yeah, JD underscore cashless on Twitter. Hell yeah. Fingers crossed for, uh, for Trinity so we get something soon. Uh, but yeah, mostly because I'm I'm honestly just been waiting for the Kenneth trying to do episode for him. <laughs> so, I mean, also I want the the leaks, but I'm also kind of like, all right, I've been waiting for an episode for a while. <laughs> but, I don't know. We'll see. I, I do. I, I'm really looking forward to see what happens there. I don't know. Maybe we'll wait another five years because we know how the court system works. Who knows? Uh, but you know, he's weirdly been successful in the past, and uh, so. But I appreciate having you here. Uh, I don't know if you have any other plugs. I think you kind of dropped them all. Uh, if not, you know, stop me and let me know. Uh, otherwise, uh, yeah, this is No Way Jose Show. If you want to follow me on Twitter, at TowerGangJose. Uh, you know, you can um, – it's on YouTube. All major all packages, Aussie as well. Make sure to like, share, subscribe, all that good stuff. If you want to support me monetarily, patreon.com, snowwayjose2020. Appreciate you coming on as always, Ken. I'm sure you'll be on again in the future. Yep, thank you. Thank you. We are out. Boop. All righty.